I'd uh, invite all of you to turn to the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22, where we're going to read the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22, verses 1 through 7. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor a light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Good morning. I'm dedicating my remarks today, my sermon, to a friend by the name of Glenn. Mona and I have known Glenn and Shirley for many years. It goes back to academy high school days. Um, if you'd know Glenn like I know Glenn then, you'd have never dreamed in your wildest imagination that Glenn would spend the rest of his life um, serving God in the world of education. Um, Glenn, <laughs> Glenn was a nice fella, but Glenn was also a rascal. And as I say, you would not have dreamt that he would spend his life. When he was in his late 20s, he was struck down with multiple sclerosis and uh, in spite of that, he has spent his entire life serving God. This, um, he's done quite well until recently. This week, he almost died. He's in the hospital with sepsis and came close to death. In his confusion, his wife told us a few days ago, um, he was out of his mind, out of his head, and very, very ill at the point of death. And she said that he was, in this confusion, talking about Jesus. And he was talking about the new earth. Subject today is the wondrous cross. And with that, the second title, The Three Gardens of Scripture. The Three Gardens of Scripture. My remarks today then spring forth from the three gardens mentioned in Scripture. First, we find the Garden of Eden, 
that we know so well in Genesis 1 and 2. The second garden is the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane that is mentioned by all the four Gospels. The third garden is the Garden in the New Earth, the book of Revelation. Here we read of a most beautiful place created by God himself, perfect in all respects. In our mind's eye, can we even imagine that beautiful, gorgeous place? Created by the command of God, Psalms 33.6 says, He commanded and it stood fast, and he did it by the breath of his mouth. Um, all creatures, great and small, were there. Just imagine this place, all in harmony, all beauty. No animal afraid of another animal. Beauty on every hand, exotic birds, every manner of life, hundreds if not thousands of fruits, gorgeous flowers and orchids, hibiscus, with a river running through it. That was the Garden of Eden. This place was so special that God placed the tree of life in the midst of that garden. And in the Bible's words, the tree of life was for the healing of the nations. This tree of life, something special about it. It bears a new fruit every month. We have nothing on earth like that. This is a God thing. This is a heaven thing. This is his almighty power. When Adam and Eve sinned, God had to force them out of the Eden paradise and had to place two angels with flaming swords at the entrance to the Garden of Eden so that they could not get in there to eat of that tree of life. There was something about the fruit from the tree of life that equaled eternity and eternal life. In the midst of this tragedy of the first sin, we have Genesis 3.15. God gave a promise of a coming Savior. The first garden points to the second garden described in the four Gospels. So we speak today of three gardens of Scripture, all connected, and all pointing to the cross and to the new earth. Arthur Pink, a well-known theologian, a godly man, has written many books. In one of those books, he talks about the contrast between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. He penned these words. In Eden, all was beautiful and perfect. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve parlayed with Satan. In Gethsemane, Jesus, the second Adam, sought the face of his father. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell into terrible sin. In Gethsemane, the Savior conquered. In Eden, the conflict took place in the day. In Gethsemane, the conflict, conflict took place at night. In Eden, Adam fell before Satan. In Gethsemane, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ took the cup from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ showed boldly showed himself boldly. In Eden, God sought the first Adam. In Gethsemane, 
the second Adam, sought God. In Eden, there was life and then death. In Gethsemane and at Calvary, there was death and then there was life. In Eden, the race was lost, but in Gethsemane, the race was won back by Christ. On many occasions in Scripture, the Scripture refers to the cross as a tree. This is so beautiful because trees provide food and shelter. They are places of rest and beauty. The most of all, they have in themselves the seed of continued life. In all these ways, every good tree points to the cross of Christ. For centuries, Bible commentators have linked and liked to contrast the trees of the Garden of Eden with the tree of Calvary. The tree of the first garden was the instrument of the curse. As Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, the tree of the cross was where Christ was made a curse for us. Both trees were in the midst, in the midst, biblical language. In Eden, the tree of knowledge and good and evil was in the midst, Genesis 2.9. At Calvary, the tree of the cross was in the midst. Where they crucified him, the two other with him on either side won, and Jesus was in the midst, John 19.18. God planted that first tree in Eden. Man planted the second tree of the cross millenniums later in the earth. Adam and Eve stole from that first tree the fruit that was not theirs. Millenniums later, a second thief was promised eternal life when he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane. Here is where Jesus went through his trial like no human being has ever endured. Our trials that we have do not even come close to his. Our infinite minds, our finite minds cannot comprehend or understand how Jesus, a member of the Godhead of the universe, could lay aside his heavenly crown, his heavenly robes, and his throne and consent to being born on this earth. Then comes the ultimate fact of all history. Jesus was born part human and part God. We cannot understand this. I believe we will understand it better when one day soon we enter the gates of the New Jerusalem and explore the wonders of the new earth. During Jesus' life on earth, the religious leaders of his day repeatedly tried to kill him. He came to save them. And they tried to kill him. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah has some words. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and he shall declare his generation. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Then comes one of the most amazing verses in Scripture. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. How can we understand this verse? God the Father was pleased to bruise Jesus on the cross. The only way we can understand it is from Jesus himself. When Jesus told us and linked ourselves to himself in that we have one Father. Jesus and the human race have one Father. Focusing in on the cross, as we keep in mind the three gardens of Scripture, the cross was a throne, the cross was an altar, the cross was a judgment bar, the cross was a mercy seat, and the cross was a pulpit. First of all, the cross was a throne. The mighty creator God condescended and humbled himself beyond anything this world has ever seen. It would be like an earthly king who decided he really wanted to understand what his subjects were about and what they thought about and what their deepest problems were. So one night this king disguised himself, left his palace, dressed in peasant clothes, and went out into the world, so to speak. And when he got there, he disguised himself so well that nobody knew who he was. And it wasn't long before they robbed him, they treated him with evil, and he soon learned what was going on in his own kingdom. Our creator, King Jesus, became obedient to death to save his people. The cross was a throne indeed. You see, Pilate put up a sign that read, This is Jesus the king of the Jews. The rabble around the cross knew there was something special here. He had had been given a purple robe, the color kings wore in that day. But they were mocking him with his purple robe. They gave him a scepter, but it was a mock scepter, it was a reed. They bowed before him in a mocking gesture. On that awful yet wondrous day, the day of the cross, some amazing things happened, things you would not expect. Can we think of cases more hopeless than these? First of all, there was a hardened Roman centurion who was undoubtedly the leader of the group of soldiers that nailed Jesus to the cross. Yet he ended up saying, truly, this is the Son of God. A hopeless case? Not when you're at the foot of the cross. A stranger from Africa, Joseph of Arimathea, carried his cross. He also became a believer 
Who would think that would happen? And then the ultimate, a man on death row who was to be crucified on a cross. Who would imagine that he would become a believer? He became a believer. Not only did he become a believer, but he had the most wondrous gift in the entire world. He received assurance of his own salvation as they hung there beside Jesus. In his book, the title of which is These Watched Him Die, Leslie Harding penned these words. And then there were people, people everywhere, faces, nameless faces of anonymous people coming and going, shouting and laughing, confronted by the most solemn issues that humanity had ever faced and would ever face, yet they were unaware. They ambled childishly, thoughtlessly, in holiday mood at the foot of the cross. All men and women stood around the cross that day in its shadow, deciding for eternity as the Son of God was being executed. You and I were there. You and I are there. And in our watching today, we settle without question the final destiny that will one day be ours as we look at the cross. Next, the cross is an altar. From the time of the exodus of God's people out of Egypt, the sanctuary service ordained by God pointed forward to this momentous event in history, the cross of Christ. All the millions of animals sacrificed for the sins of the people pointed forward to the cross of Christ on Mount Calvary. The first words of Christ from the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. As soon as the blood spilled from his hands and his feet and his head, our Lord was interceding for us. The cross was his altar. The lamb at last was being slain. Let us turn back to that amazing text in Revelation 5 about the Lamb. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Revelation 5, and there was a book, a special book that no one could be found to open. And John in vision was weeping, profoundly weeping. He says, I wept much, I wept much, in the words of John, because nobody could be found to open the book. Then the words of Scripture come to us that one of the elders there said, Oh, don't weep, John, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy. He is able to open this book. When John opened his eyes again and looked, he didn't see a lion. Scripture says that he saw a lamb as though it had been slain. The cross is also a judgment bar. How often do you picture in your mind's eye those three crosses on Calvary? There were women weeping there. His mother was there. Mary of Magdala was there. And by the way, she's the only person in Scripture, in Bible history, where Jesus promised that her story would be told until the end of time. Wasn't a theologian. 
wasn't a great Christian was Mary of Magdala. I hope that gives you courage. Yes, Jesus does save to the uttermost. And Jesus promised that if he were to be lifted up on a cross one day, he would draw all men unto him. John 12, 32. Yes, that Friday afternoon at the cross, it was judgment indeed. Judgment day for everyone. For you see, you cannot look at the cross and not make a decision. You make a decision for Christ or against Christ. Some don't make a decision. But by not making a decision, you make a decision against him. So it was that Friday afternoon, two very bad men, thieves, were hanging beside the Savior that day, both cursing him at first. Then suddenly one of them heard those wonderful words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Those were not words from a simple human mind. He had never heard anything like this before. The man beside him was being executed, and yet he uttered those unbelievable words. Something was stirring in his heart. How do you say those words when people are hanging you and mocking you on a cross? And then he looked and he saw that sign above Jesus' head that Pilate had written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. His heart was stirred. He had a glimpse of salvation. Jesus' heart was warmed. For you see, he would have died for just one soul if that was all he could have saved. John 3.18, let's read about that. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Amazing as it is, Jesus, who could give sight to the blind and suddenly give life to a deformed limb, And it could calm a roaring sea. And above all could give life to a dead man. That same Jesus, the Galilean, refuses to force anyone into his kingdom. Amazing. Let me say it again. He refuses to force anyone against their will into his kingdom. So we have the cross as a throne, an altar, and a judgment bar. Next we have my favorite, the cross as a mercy seat. The cross as a mercy seat. I hope this is your favorite too. The cross as a mercy seat. Just as in the Old Testament sacrificial system and sanctuary service, the cross is brought forth as a mercy seat so that all may be saved if they accept Jesus' sacrifice there at Calvary. This is so beautifully spelled out, John 3. 15. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In the Old Testament system, the Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place. In that Ark was placed the Ten Commandments, written by God's own finger. Above that was the blood-stained mercy seat, representing Jesus on the cross. And hovering over that were the two cherubim angels, representing angels from God's throne. God's law cannot be changed, therefore Jesus had to die. 
the bloodstained mercy seat of old between God and the broken law that we of sinners have broken. Even now the cross intervenes between the sinner and the great judge at the end of time. You see, the law is a perfect standard of righteousness, but because of our sin, it can never give us a perfect standing before God. Therefore, we find David telling us those wonderful words, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalms 85.10 Therefore, God can be just and the justifier of the sinner. And finally, the cross was a pulpit. The cross was a pulpit from where Jesus gave his greatest sermon, just seven short sentences. It is a masterpiece. The first, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke twenty three thirty four. What manner of man could say this? He was being tortured in the worst way. He came to save them, and they were killing him. We see here, though, the principle of God's kingdom that's hard for us to handle at times. Forgiveness, it shouts out to us. In fact, here it is, folks. If we don't forgive our fellow men, God cannot forgive us. The second was Jesus telling the thief beside him, You will be with me when I come to my kingdom. Luke 23. Jesus was crucified in the midst of two thieves. Both cursed him at first. Then the one on the right found in his heart was strangely warmed. He saw Jesus' reaction to the mocking of the religious leaders. He saw the sign above his head about being the king of the Jews. After telling his fellow thief Jesus had done nothing amiss, Nothing amiss. He suddenly said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This certainly warmed the heart of Jesus as he promised him eternal life. We are all sinners and thieves and we can have eternal life only by believing and asking for it. The third saying, the third part of his sermon was concerned for his mother. John 19.25 tells us, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. Jesus in painful agony and his thoughts turned toward his mother and her welfare as he saw her standing there at the foot of the cross. He simply said to her, Woman, behold thy son. And to his beloved disciple John, who was just a late teenager, about 20 years old at that time. He said, Behold thy mother. And then scripture says, From that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. John nineteen twenty seven. The fourth part of the sermon, Mark fifteen thirty three, And then the sixth hour has come. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here is where Jesus was being taunted and mocked. Here is where Jesus felt that his father had forsaken him. He thought he was all alone. But then, after the three-hour darkness, light shone through the darkness. And Jesus knew that his father was there. 
and would help him with this unbearable trial. The fifth saying of the sermon, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, and that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. He cried out, I thirst. What a moment in history. The creator who had commanded, and it stood fast, according to Psalms, just by the breath of his mouth, he had created the world, and all in it was hanging on a tree, suspended between earth and heaven, the very earth he had created, the tree from which the cross was made, was from a tree that he had created, the fountains of waters he created, he who had offered eternal life giving water to the woman at the well, and to everyone else who goes to that well, he who had healed countless people, he who had raised the dead, now cried out, I thirst. I thirst, John eighteen twenty eight. He who left his throne in heaven to come to earth, that throne which Revelation tells us is a river of life flowing from the throne of God. And he was to say in Revelation 21, 6, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountains of the water of life freely. This man, this God said and shouted, I thirst. Here we see the invitation to everyone who will believe and come to the foot of the cross. We must remember that the highest place we can have on this earth is kneeling at the foot of the cross. The sixth part of the sermon that Jesus gave that day in Luke 23, we find the sixth saying of Jesus. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, This Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Here we see complete, total trust in his Father. This same trust we must have if we are to enter that new Jerusalem one day. In his dying agony, he trusted his Father above everything else. He endured more than anyone has ever had to endure on this earth. At this moment, the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom by an unseen hand. Luke 23, 24. The sacrificial system was ended. It was over. The real Lamb of God was being slain. The most holy place was now open because the glory of God had departed. And by so doing, salvation was open to everyone. Everyone. The last and seventh saying we find in John 19.30, Jesus said, It is finished. He then bowed his head, and according to scripture, he died. This moment was one of agony and horror and ultimate pain, but also one of glory and majesty and grace and eternal life for all humanity. Yes, Satan was defeated at the cross. His doom was sealed and Satan knew it. Jesus was the victor. The greatest sermon ever preached was over. Salvation for us was secured. So we find that Eden, the Garden of Eden, points to Gethsemane by Genesis 3.15. And Gethsemane and the cross and Calvary Point to the new earth and the new garden there. Let's read about that in Revelation 21 and 22. 
Revelation 21, the first verse. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. We go to chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life. My friends, that's the same tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden. Which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face. And his face shall be in their foreheads. His name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. And they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. When you're discouraged, read that text over and over. And he said unto me, These things are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which shortly must be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keep the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Words seem to fail us as we contemplate the cross and salvation. There is one thing certain, however... And that is that we are made a little lower than the angels. But there's one thing we will do that the angels cannot do. As the redeemed, we will sing the song of praise and glory to God. From sinners that we were to the saved that we will be. For you see, angels have never felt the joy that our salvation brings. So although I'm not an angel, yet I know that over there, I will join a blessed chorus that the angels cannot share. I will sing about my Savior because of dark Calvary. As we leave this morning, let us all remember that we do indeed enter a mission field. In Jesus' name, amen.